Good morning, Living Streams. How are you guys doing today? <clears throat> well, my name is Alex Deacons. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and I wanted to give you a little heads up. If you're someone who uh, is new here, maybe for someone who doesn't know Jesus, hasn't given your life to the Lord, if you're not necessarily a Christian, I wanted to give you a, a little bit of a heads up that later on today, kind of towards the end of when I'm done talking, there's going to be an invitation, an opportunity for you to maybe consider giving your life to Jesus and, um, and beginning a life of following him. And if you don't know what that means or why you would do that, then I'm really glad that you're here today. Uh, you are the person that I want to talk to. You are the reason uh, in particular uh, why we're talking about the things we're talking about today. Um, so with that being said, all of us in the room are probably very aware of the fact that there is a felt and a very real lack of peace in this world. Right? We know that nation ought not to fight against nation, and yet we do. We know that on, on a more interpersonal level, right, friends and family members and husbands and wives and loved ones and strangers ought not to fight with one another, and yet we do. We know that on an internal level, Right? Our bodies not, ought not to fight with us. Right, We ought not to have sickness and chronic pain and the regular kind of pain and, and eventually even death, Right, but, it, but yet our bodies do fight with us. And we know that our mind and our emotions ought not to fight with us, and yet they, they do. We have anxiety and depression and sorrow and anger and frustration and confusion and all of these things. There are so many different forms of conflict, of so many different manifestations of lack of peace in the world, thousands, millions, probably honestly billions every single day, and it ought not to be this way. And, and as far back as we can see and as far forward as we can see, it seems like it always has and maybe always will be this way. But yet when we sit and we think about it, we feel like that can't possibly be true. There must have been a moment in history when mankind was at peace with each other, when we were at peace with creation, when we were at peace with God. And, and, and if we stop and think about it, again, we realize it, it doesn't feel like it could be true that it will always be like this because we as individuals and also collectively as humanity, we seem to be perpetually striving forward, trying to get back to a place of peace. We're trying to manage this conflict, trying to manage this lack of peace in all of its forms, right? And so we're moving forward on maybe on the international scale, right? We, we try different economic policies or different foreign policies, hoping that they will bring peace among nations, and yet they you know, some of those strategies work pretty well. Some of them, eh, some of them are even counterproductive, right? And then on the interpersonal level, we try so many different strategies. Some of us try to be really assertive so that, you know, people don't mess with us. And some of us, others of us try to be a bit more passive and diminutive so we don't ruffle feathers. And others still say, you know, I'm just going to chop out the people in my life with whom I have conflict. And that'll bring maybe some peace on the interpersonal level. And then on the internal level, we try so many different strategies too. Right? In regards to our body, we try this medicine or that medicine, or we try this workout or th that workout, or we try this food but don't eat that food. You know, as far as our, our, um, our mental and emotional state, we try maybe, you know, some of the same things we would try for our body. This workout, that workout, this medication, that medication. You know, maybe we try meditation. Maybe we try, try mindfulness or therapy. Uh, maybe we buy ourselves a little kitty cat. I don't think that's likely to help your mental and emotional state, to be honest. You'd be better off with a puppy. Um, <laughs> But, you know, yeah, it's true. I know. Fighting words there, but it's, I'm sorry. You came to hear truth today, and that's what you got. Um, and we, we try all these different strategies trying to just manage the, the lack of peace that we experience in the world. And again, some of, some of these work all right. Some of them not so well. Some of them are even counterproductive, right? But even the best of all of these strategies are just managing it. 
right? We just managed to suppress it for a while and it pops up somewhere else. Maybe the same exact conflict, maybe a different conflict. There just doesn't seem to be any eradicating the lack of peace in the world as far as you and I are concerned, as far as we're capable. Now, a couple months ago, my, my son, he's about 10 and a half months old now. He's our first little baby boy. Um, at the time, he was maybe seven or eight months he got really, really sick for a while. Like he got this really bad fever. He was hitting like 103, 104. He was achy and sore. It was affecting his appetite. Silas is such a fun, happy, like laughing little baby boy who's always smiling and laughing at everything. Um, but for a couple of days there, when you'd like make a little joke or like play peekaboo or do whatever, you know, with him, all he could do was like kind of crack a little smile out of the corner of his mouth and go, <laughs> It was, just, it was just so miserable, like a little puddle of infant baby cute misery. Um, and then after a couple of days, he started to get better, right? The, the fever broke, um, and he stopped being so achy. His appetite came back. He started laughing again. He started feeling better. You know, things cleared up a little bit. He had a couple of days with no symptoms, and then after a couple of days, there was one night when he had a little bit of a cough, in the middle of the night, and then the next night, it was a more significant cough, and then the night after that, he was coughing the whole night through, and, and he had a couple of days of just really intense coughing at nighttime, and then he'd have a couple of days with, with, with no cough at all, and then he'd have a couple of days with a cough and a runny nose, and it was really bad, and he was going up and down and up and down and up and down, better sick, better sick, and me and his mom's heart, we were just getting yanked around on this roller coaster of our little baby boy as first-time parents. It's absolutely miserable. I'm sure it's not less miserable when you've had plenty of kids seeing your kids get sick. Um, and then eventually, you know, we started to get worried that maybe he had like a lung infection or something because of all this coughing. So we took him back to the pediatrician and the pediatrician looked at him and said, no, his lungs are fine, but it, it seems like he has maybe a bit of an ear infection in both ears and you might want to consider getting him on antibiotics. And so we talked about it. We thought about it. We called some friends who are medical professionals and got their perspective because we were a little concerned about some of the potential long-term side effects about getting an, a baby on antibiotics so young. And so after chatting with some people and talking about it, we decided, you know, he doesn't seem to be in pain. He doesn't have a fever. It might not hurt to let it ride for a couple weeks on its own and, and see if, you know, we can resolve that by taking care of the symptoms and stuff. And, and, and maybe he'll, his body will get better on its own. And so we set an appointment for two weeks later with the pediatrician, decided not to put him on antibiotics. And in the meantime, we figured we'll just tackle all of his symptoms with everything we can, right? So we got humidifier in the room, cranked it up to 11, you know, keeping him nice and comfortable. We got all the little medicines and natural things that could mix safely without overdoing it for him and managed all the different symptoms he had. And he, we even got this horrible thing uh, that if you're a young parent, since these things have been invented, uh, you know what I'm talking about. It's called a nose Frida. It's, it's absolutely the worst thing in the world. It's basically a tube. Yeah, all the parents like groaning in the room, you're like, or anybody who's gagging knows what I'm talking about. It's a tube, and in the middle, there's a little, a little filter thing, and you stick it in your baby's nose and just, and try and get everything out. And in theory, you know, the filter, you know, keeps anything from getting to you, but it doesn't help. And I, oh my gosh, I got to tell you, I tried it once, and all I, the whole time was just, so my wife gets all of the gold stars for being the one who effectively managed that symptom the entire time. And so we did all of this for a couple of weeks. And after a while, we thought, hey, we're doing it. Like, he's feeling a lot better. He's not coughing so much. Like, we kicked this thing. So we go into the pediatrician's office two weeks later with our heads held high, feeling like, stupid pediatrician, what do you know? Mom and dad know best, right? You take your overprescribed antibiotics and, you know, like, we kicked this thing. We walk in there feeling all great and, you know, strutting a little bit. We take our baby and we put him on the table. The pediatrician takes his little thing, you know, little ear-looky thingy and 
pokes inside of both of his ears and looks at him and says, you know, he's still got a pretty bad middle ear infection in both of his ears. I think you might need to get him on antibiotics. And so, you know, we thought about it and um, decided, okay, it's time. So we got him on one round of antibiotics that didn't do much. And then we got him on a second round of antibiotics. And then about halfway, three quarters of the way through that, his nose cleared up, the cough disappeared. We took him in recently to get him checked and 100% he's better. Um, and there was just this huge sigh of relief in both of our hearts to realize, like, this medicine that we gave him, the, these antibiotics, they actually kicked the, the sickness. You know, we did our best managing the symptoms, but it wasn't enough. And the thing is, sometimes managing the symptoms just isn't enough. Sometimes you need something from outside of you, something that's stronger, to come in and deal with the underlying sickness. And when it comes to the lack of peace in the world, when it comes to the conflict in the world, you and I and all of humanity, all we can do at best is manage the symptoms. And it's not totally useless to do that, but it it doesn't have any real staying power. There is an underlying sickness that needs to be dealt with. And the Bible actually talks about this. This is kind of something that's being unfurled from page one to the final page of the Bible. The Bible tells us that the sickness that underlies the, the, the sin, the death, sorry, the death and the conflict and the lack of peace and all of this, the sickness that underlies all of that is what the Bible calls sin. And sin is when you or I or anyone else does something that is out of alignment with how God designed the world. Another way to say that is it's whenever we do anything that's out of alignment with God's will. Another way to say that is that it's anytime we do anything that actually puts a little bit of a break in relationship between us and God and distances ourselves from God. And the result of distancing ourselves from God is actually conflict and death. Because the Bible tells us that God is life himself. And so to distance yourself from life obviously is going to lead to death, death, as certainly as to turn off the light switch is going to lead to darkness in the room. So if we step away from life, we get death. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, and that's exactly what it's talking about. It's saying that the natural and unavoidable consequences of sin, of stepping out of alignment with God's will, of distancing ourselves in relationship to God, the natural and unavoidable consequences of that is death. And that death is the kind of death that we mean when we see, say death. But it's also many, 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 many little deaths. And Jesus is the only one who can deal with that underlying sickness. He's the only one. He's stronger than us and he comes from outside of ourselves. And he deals not just with managing the symptoms, but he actually cuts at the heart of the sickness and he eradicates that from us. And there is this beautiful story that unfurls across the pages of the Bible and across the pages of human history of how we get broken and how we experience death and conflict and how God intends to resolve it, begins to resolve it, and later on in the future, we'll see him fully and completely finish the story. And this is a beautiful story, and it contains a lot of powerful truth. And so I want to kind of skip over that story for you, right? And, 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 and kind of pass through it, give you a summary of it, right? And so we can understand, because I think we learn powerful truths through story, and what better story than the actual story of the history of humanity, right? And so uh, in, in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Right? And he made the sun and the moon and the stars, and he separated the land from the waters, and he made the fish and the birds and the animals and everything on the planet. And on day six, God said, you know, let us make man in our own image. And so male and female, he made them. And after he had made them, God saw that it was very good. 
he saw that it was very good when he made you and me and mankind. And he placed the man and the woman, those two specifically were named Adam and Eve. He placed them in this garden on this mountaintop called Eden. The garden was called Eden. And there were these beautiful, powerful rivers that flowed out from the garden. And there was uh, all sorts of vegetation and fruit trees and everything good to eat was in this garden. And the man and the woman, they lived in the garden at peace with each other and with God and with his creation. And they knew him closely and intimately, and they knew each other closely and intimately, and they knew his creation closely and intimately. But God wanted a real relationship with mankind. He wanted a real relationship with Adam and Eve, and he knew that a real relationship can't be a forced relationship. And any relationship that doesn't have an open door, that doesn't have an off-ramp, is a forced relationship. And so God made this tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he put it in the middle of the garden. And he said, don't eat of this. To eat of this would be sin. To eat of this would bring death. To eat of this would bring a rift in relationship between me and you. And again, he did this so that they could choose him or have the freedom to not choose him. And and so one day, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, they were walking through the garden and they saw the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat of. And and the serpent was there and the serpent enticed them and deceived them. And, And so Eve saw that the fruit was good to eat and she took of it and she bit of the fruit and she passed it to her husband who was right there with her and he took a bite as well. And in that moment, sin entered the world. Peace was broken. Death came in. And immediately they realized that they were naked and ashamed. See, just moments before they were naked and unashamed. And the reason they were unashamed in their nakedness was because there was everything exposed and none of what was exposed was shameful. But now they're exposed and there is sin, which is shameful. And so they immediately start trying to manage the symptoms. What do they do? They get some fig leaves and they try to stitch them together to cover up their nakedness. But it doesn't work good enough. How do we know it doesn't work good enough? Well, A, because none of us are wearing leaf clothes today. So that doesn't tend to work really great. But B, because we see them hiding from God immediately after. It wasn't enough to cover their nakedness. They had to go then hide from him. And God is heartbroken and he, as he sees it, that, that they're hiding from him. And so he comes and he finds them and he begins to speak to them. And immediately they start, you see the cracks beginning to grow in relationship between everybody, right? And so they're, they're, they're pointing fingers at each other and at the serpent and God's creation and at God. And there is this tragic breakdown of relationship. And we see the death, we see the lack of peace uh, that sin is, is resulting in. And God defines for the man and the woman the consequences of their sin, the natural and unavoidable consequences. I think it's important at this point in time to spell out that there's a difference between kind of arbitrary consequences and and natural and unavoidable consequences, right? An arbitrary consequence would be like a speeding ticket. If you're on the freeway and the speed limit is 65 miles an hour and you're going 85, 90 miles an hour and there's no police around, nothing happens, hopefully, if you're a decent driver. Um, and so that speeding ticket that, that the, the police officer might give you is, is a bit arbitrary. We know why they do it, but, but it's a bit arbitrary. Someone just decided and made, and made up the consequence, right? But if you are on the freeway and you're in a 21-foot-tall truck and you're coming up on a bridge that says 20-foot uh, clearance only, well, there's something not arbitrary that might happen if you choose to ignore that sign, right? If you look to your right and you look to your left, you look ahead of you, you look behind you, and you think, I don't see any police officers, I think I can make it. And so you take your 21-foot truck and you gun it towards that 20-foot clearance bridge. Well, as soon as you go to that bridge, you're going to experience some unavoidable natural consequences. 
Why? Because it doesn't matter if there's a police officer around. That's the way the world works. 21-foot trucks under 20-foot bridges equals some serious destruction, some serious consequences. And this is how the world works. Sin, the wages of sin, is death. That is not arbitrary. That is, is not malicious. That is the design of the world. It simply works that way. If we sin, we distance ourselves from life himself. We distance ourselves from God. And, and two, plus two, 2 plus 2 equals 4, and sin equals death. It just works that way. And so God is spelling out some of the specifics of how this is going to work out in creation. And one of those specifics is that the man and the woman, they were going to have to leave the Garden of Eden, leave that place of peace with God and with creation and with each other. But even as God is defining this and explaining this to them, he can't help but begin to whisper of, begin to allude, begin to prophesy of his plan to set it all right. And so he speaks of a seed of a child who would be born of the woman, who would crush the head of the serpent, though his heel would be bruised. And this is who the Israelites, the followers of God, the people of God came to know as the Messiah, the Savior, the one that would bring peace on earth. And so we find ourselves hoping for this, this Messiah, this, this seed, this child of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And we flip the page in Genesis and we get really excited because immediately we see a story of two of her children, two sons, two seeds of the woman. We're thinking maybe one of these will crush the head of the serpent and bring us back to Eden, back to peace. But immediately our hopes are crushed and our hearts are broken as we see that her one son, Cain, out of envy and jealousy, murders his son, Abel. This isn't the Messiah. This is one who's eating of the fruit again. This is one who's, who's sinning. This is one who's breaking the will and design of God, who's breaking a relationship with God. And death has entered the world in a new and murderous way. And then after Cain and Abel, we see generation after generation after generation of humanity getting worse and worse and worse, more depraved, more wicked, more murderous, more broken as they distance themselves further and further from God until we find a man named Noah who we're told is the only one righteous in his generation. We think this is gonna be it. God, it says to Noah, hey, I'm gonna use you to deliver a remnant of humanity and you know, all the animals, you know, the two by two. There's, I've been reading to my son, there's some giraffes and there's elephants in there. There's probably not cats because again, I don't think those came from the Lord. Um, definitely dogs, you know. Um, and so God uses Noah to, to deliver a remnant, right? And then after the floods, as, as he wipes out with all the wickedness of humanity with the flood, and then the flood subsides and the ark lands on, a, on this mountaintop, just like Eden. And immediately Noah starts to plant a garden, specifically a vineyard. And we're thinking, this is it, right? God's wiped away the wickedness. We're going back to Eden, peace on earth. Noah's gonna be the one to crush the head of the serpent. But then our hearts are broken because as soon as Noah has fruit from his garden, what does he do? He makes wine and he drinks of it. And next thing you know, he is naked and passed out and drunk. And his son Ham does something particularly shameful. And as a result, Ham and his son are cursed now. And we see death enter the world anew. And we see, man, our heart is broken because we thought Noah was the Messiah, but he's not. And so we skip ahead a few generations and we come to a man named Abraham. And we think it's going to be Abraham, right? God says, Abraham, I'm picking you. I'm making a covenant with you. Through you, all generations, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I mean, it's got to be, it's got to be this guy, right? And then our heart breaks as we read on an Abraham story and we realize that he is a sinful man, biting of the fruit, breaking with alignment with God, even breaking his relationship with God. 
And our heart breaks. We think maybe it's his son Isaac or his son Jacob, but our heart breaks as we read their story too and we see that they also are sinful. And then we skip ahead quite a few generations and the followers of God, the people of God, have now become a nation called Israel. And there's a man named Moses that God uses to deliver the people of Israel out of slavery from the Egyptians. And we think it's gonna be Moses because Moses delivers the people of Israel. He sees God like almost face to face on this mountaintop again with this Eden-esque imagery. And we're thinking, this is it. This is the one. He's the seed of the woman. He'll crush the head of the serpent. He'll bring peace on earth finally. But then our heart breaks as we see that Moses too is a sinful and broken man. And God at this point decides to give a, an object lesson to his people. And he, and he shows them, he uses an arbitrary rule. He says, you know, hey, when you sin, I want you to understand that death results. And so I want you to take animals when you sin and, and to show how, how powerful and how deadly it is. I want you to sacrifice these animals so there's blood so that you can see the cost of your sin, of your brokenness. And then after, after Moses, we think, um, okay, maybe it's Joshua, or maybe it's any one of the dozens of judges that God uses after Joshua to deliver the people of Israel from their enemies. But our heart breaks as every single one of those judges is worse than the one before them. And eventually we come to a man named David, and we think, it's got to be this guy. Beloved of the Lord, man after God's own heart. heart. He becomes king of the people of Israel. He expands the kingdom of God. It's going to be David, the Messiah, the one who is the seed of the woman, who will crush the head of the serpent, who will bring peace on earth. But as we read David's story, our heart breaks yet again and our hopes are shattered to pieces as we see that he's a liar, he's a deceiver, he's an adulterer, he's a murderer. And God even says, David, I love you so much, but there's too much blood on your hands to build my house. And after David, for centuries, we have no one who realistically pings on our Messiah radar, no one who might possibly realistically be the Messiah. And the people of Israel go, grow more and more and more distant from God, more and more and more sinful until they've almost completely forgotten his promise of a Messiah, his promise of the seed of the woman who would be, who would be born, who would crush the head of the serpent. And into these centuries, God begins to send his prophets to remind the people of Israel of his promise. As if to say, though my word has not yet come to pass, neither has it been shaken. And he tells them, he unfurls more and more and more of his plan of this Messiah. And one of these prophets is a man named Isaiah. And I want to read some of the things that he says about the Messiah. So in Isaiah chapter 2, verse uh, 4, it says this, He, speaking of the Messiah, will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. And so you know, in the verses just before this, he's talking about how the Messiah will, will kind of rule and judge from atop his mountain, some of that Eden garden imagery, right? And, and then he's saying, you know, what's going to happen is as he judges between the nations, there's going to be peace. And so what they'll do is they'll take their swords and they'll turn them into plowshares. They'll take their spears and turn them into pruning hooks. He's saying that, you know, when the Messiah comes, that the nations, that the individuals that humanity will take our, our weapons of war and turn them into tools for the garden. Why? Because we're going back to Eden. We're going back to peace on earth. And then in Isaiah uh, chapter 9, verses 5 through 7a, it says, Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born, a son is given. Do you see that, that imagery calling back to the promise of God, a seed born of the woman? 
And the government will be on his shoulders, and, we will be called, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And in Isaiah 53, 5, it says, But he, speaking of the Messiah, was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. God reminds his people of his promise to send the Messiah, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, who would bring peace on earth. And then, after this, we have a few more centuries of sorrow and brokenness. The people of Israel, they cling tightly to God's new and fresh promises, reminding them of his old promises. They cling to these, but they see centuries without anyone who might be the Messiah. And they see centuries of oppression and violence and conflict and a great and powerful lack of peace on the earth. Internationally, interpersonally, and internally, they experience this conflict. And we see empire after empire after empire crushing them, right? We have the Assyrians and after that the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and eventually the Romans. And, and now we've had a few hundred years of silence, not even hearing from a prophet on the behalf of the Lord. Centuries of silence. And on one of these silent nights, a baby is born. And he's named Jesus, but sometimes they call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And he was born in a stable because his parents were traveling and there was no room for them in the inn. And so when he, when he came out, they wrapped him up in some cloths and they placed him in a manger in a feeding trough because there was no crib for him. And on this night, we hear um, the story that we read earlier today. In Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, it says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said, Do not be afraid. I bring good news to you that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. God came into the world to fulfill his promise that he spoke the moment we broke with him, the moment we shattered our relationship, the moment we ruined peace on earth. God himself came into the world. Jesus was born. Fully God and fully man. A reality that is as beautiful and enigmatic, perhaps more so than the very impossible origins of this universe. Right? God from God. As light from light is what the early church fathers said, right? Like there's light here and there's light here and it's all the same and yet it comes from it. But it's, you know, it's, it's this crazy thing that's hard for us to wrap our mind around. And this is the way Jesus comes from the Father. He's co-eternal with the Father. He was begotten, not made. What that means, I don't even know. It is absolutely enigmatic. But, but our, our, the origins of this very universe in which we made is exactly, if not slightly less so, as enigmatic 
as the reality of God become man, right? It seems impossible to us that this universe could be, you know, eternal, that it could have always existed. Otherwise, how would we have gotten to this moment in time if, if the universe was, was infinite and eternal? And yet at the same time, it seems impossible within the laws of physics that the universe could come to exist on its own. And yet here it is, here we are. This is a beautiful enigma in, in the reality of the fact that anything exists. And in a similar way that is perhaps more beautiful and more enigmatic, God became flesh. It seems impossible to us that, that, in, that an eternal and infinite God could also be a finite and temporal man. And yet he was, and he is, and he is to come. God became man was born as a child so that he could live a sinless life. And though he was innocent, he was arrested and he was mocked and he was beaten and he was bruised and he was stripped naked and paraded through the city. And this was to pay for our sin, to pay for our shame, to cover it. Right? He didn't cover our shame uh, with these flimsy, you know, kind of symptom managing fig leaves, but he covered them in his infinite blood that didn't just cover it, but dealt with the underlying sickness. It washes us white as snow. And then he was taken to a mountaintop, to a hill called Golgotha, where he was raised on a tree, reminiscent, or a cross made of wood, reminiscent of this garden imagery. And he was lifted up and he was crucified and he died. And when he died, he paid our debt of sin, our debt of guilt. And then he was in the grave for three days, and on the third day he rose again to prove that he conquered death. See, it was necessary that God would be a man because it was the debt of man that put us in, 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 in a break in relationship with God. And since no man had ever succeeded in paying that debt or living a flawless life, God said, you know what? I'll go do it. And I'll become a man to pay their debt. And it was necessary that, that it would be an infinite God who would sacrifice himself. Because even if one of us managed to live one flawless life, maybe that could pay for one sin of one person. But God wanted to restore all of us into relationship with him. And so he spilled his infinite blood, paying for our nearly infinite sins. Because he actually really loves us regardless of how many times we've spat in his face. He proved that by becoming a man and letting us literally spit in his face. He proved that he wants to look on us with honor and not shame by being paraded through the city, carrying our shame so he could cover it in his blood. And this is, this is a beautiful story. I mean, it, it, it's such a beautiful story that I think this story resonates throughout history in almost every half-decent story that humanity has ever told, right? Have you ever learned the little plot line, right? You, have the rising, you got the conflict and the rising action and the climax and the resolution. And I think that is an echo in our hearts of the truth of this story. But it's not just a beautiful story. It's a story that, that really, really works. Like, like, I've lived my life this way. And all I can tell you is all of my own efforts are just managing conflict. Jesus is the only way I have ever seen the sickness dealt with. And I've seen him deal with it. I've seen him eradicate it and wash it in my own life and in the lives of who knows how many people. 
And I don't think it's just a beautiful story, and I don't think it's just a beautiful story that really works and is like a better way to live life. I think it's actually the only story and the only truth that is fully and completely 100% in alignment with the reality of the way the world works. It's not just a coincidence that it's beautiful and a functional story. I think it's genuinely true. Not just a useful fairy tale, but actual history and actual reality. And if you've been trying your whole life to just kind of manage the lack of peace. Jesus has an invitation for you. It's, it's for this reason that in John three sixteen it says that for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. And that life that God promises isn't just like that you live forever. It's like life, like ever, the kind of life that we only experience in fleeting moments, right? Like when you're holding your child for the first time or when you're spending time with someone you deeply love or when you're around the dinner table belly laughing or when you've mowed your nice, fresh winter rye grass lawn and you're like, oh yeah, that's some good lawn. These moments, these brief moments of life, God promises everlasting life for whoever believes in him. And to believe in him isn't just to like mentally assent to it. Isn't just to say, oh yeah, I, I guess I agree that, you know, he was God and he was the son of God that, you know, that he died for me. But, but to believe in him is something far more profound than that. It's like when you say to a good friend, I believe in you. That is a profound statement of, of intimate faithfulness, right? That says, I'm going to be there no matter what it looks like. I believe in you and I'm there. It is to give your life to him, to place your trust in him, and to realign yourself with God's design for the world, which is him in charge, him ruling and reigning. But that's your choice, whether or not you're going to align yourself with his sovereignty, with his rule, with his goodness, with his kingship. Because he's laid out another option. And we'll all come back at some point like he was resurrected. We'll all come back. Those of us who love him and who've accepted him to the resurrection of eternal life, those who've not, to the resurrection that we've chosen, to say, you know what? I don't want eternal life. I don't want to be with life himself. I don't want to be with God. I want to do things my own way. And that's what we call hell. That is a place where God says, I will honor your decision to be apart from me. And there's no way to be apart from life except for death eternally. And God wants you to give him your life for no other reason than that he loves you. And in just a couple of minutes when I'm done, done talking, if you've never done this before, if you've never said, hey, okay, maybe, maybe I want to try this. Maybe I want to try putting my trust in Jesus. Uh, in a little bit, there'll be some people up front, and I want to invite you to come and, and speak with one of those people and maybe pray with them, and they'll help walk you through maybe taking those first few steps to accept Jesus, to figure out what it's like. And then I want to invite you after service as well. There's, there's a white tent back there with some people there who will help you kind of figure out maybe the next few steps, right? They got a gift for you, a free Bible, um, and, and they just want to pray with you and kind of help you figure this out. And I want to really encourage you, if you've never accepted Jesus, today's the day to do that. But before that, there's one last thing. I felt like the Lord had a word for some people in the room uh, who've accepted him already. But you're in a season of life where you're frustrated. Maybe it's a long season. You're frustrated, maybe even angry, maybe even, maybe even beginning to get bitter because you're saying, God, you came to bring peace on earth, but where's my peace? 
Where's the peace in my, in my marriage? Where's the peace in my family? Where's the peace at work? Where's the peace in the world? Where's the peace with my body that is fighting against me, with my mind and my emotions that are making war on me? Where is the peace that you promised? I think there's probably quite a few people the Lord's wanting to speak to in this regard today. And, and if you're one of them, I, I think the Lord has a couple of things he wants to say to you. I think the first thing is this. I feel like the Lord is saying that the season you are in is like those centuries when the people of Israel had almost forgotten the promise of Messiah. And they hadn't seen a hope for his return in a long time. And God's word to them on the, on, in those centuries is his word to you today. Though my word has not yet come to pass, neither has it been shaken. That's what he's saying to you. I am the author and the finisher of your faith. I start what I finish. I complete it and I complete it perfectly. I feel like for some of you, the Lord is saying that peace is actually here today. But the thing is, is you're holding on to something. Before in your life, you've given me things and let me give you peace instead. But why are you clinging on to this thing? Come, lay it down. Give it to me. Let me give you peace. For others of you, the Lord is saying that that's, that's not the issue. The issue is that I just haven't brought you the peace yet. That's coming tomorrow or a year from now or 10 years from now. Or maybe for some of you, the Lord is saying, will you hold faithfully to me and wait until I return and say, behold, I make all things new. Wait until I bring us back to the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and we enter Eden again with all that peace. Will you be faithful until then? The other thing I feel like the Lord is saying to those people is this. Why have you forgotten? Why have you forgotten the peace that I already brought you? Do you not remember what happened when you first gave your life to me and the peace and the healing I brought that you had no hope for? When I healed what could not be healed? I did that for many reasons. Part of it was because I simply love you and I wanted to heal you on that day. But also I healed you on that day. I brought peace on that day. Because I wanted you to know how to be faithful today. I wanted to remind you. I wanted to show to you. I wanted to prove you today that I'm able to bring peace where there is no peace, where there's no hope for peace. I am that hope. And so if that's you, I, I would just encourage you find respite in the Lord today. Remember that his promises are true and maybe let go of something and let him have it. So I'm going to pray now, and then we have that opportunity. If you want to come and pray with someone and process through uh, maybe that word I was just given, or, or maybe if you want to come and give your life to the Lord, someone will come help, help you figure out how to do that. So let's pray really quick. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you that you have laid down your life for us, and we want to give you our lives. We trust you and we worship you, Lord. I thank you for the beauty of this story. I thank you that it works, and I thank you that it is reality, that it is true, it is powerful, and it is meaningful that you love us, that you cover our shame, and that you pay for our debt. And we are guilty no more if we rest in you. Amen. I want to encourage you again, if you're one of those people who hasn't given your life to the Lord, today's your day. Today's the time. It's a freely offered gift, but it's going to cost you your whole life. Come on up or go back to the white tent and talk with someone who's going to help you make that decision.